Good morning. Once again, my name is Natalie Cole from the marketing team at Dickerson Insurance Services. We're very happy you could join us for today's webinar titled, What Advisors Need to Know About Benefit Captives for Mid-Size Employers. Next slide, please. This course is approved by the California Department of Insurance for one hour of CE credit. We have been instructed to conduct polling questions throughout the presentation. It is advised that you participate using a computer instead of a cell phone. In order to receive CE credit, you must answer all polling questions. Your responses will be recorded. Our CE presentations are also recorded and copies of both the recording and the slide deck are available for you. That will come directly from me, Natalie Cole. We report CE credits to the Department of California, I'm sorry, we report CE credits to the California Department of Insurance within two working days of the presentation. Your credit should show up on your CDI online account within 30 days. And if you have any questions or need any assistance, please contact me at the Dickerson Marketing Department. And that is my phone number and email address. Before I introduce today's presenter, I want to let you know that we welcome your questions. Please enter them in the question box in the lower right-hand corner of your screen, and we will answer them at the conclusion of this presentation. Today's presenter is Mr. David Fear Sr. He is a 40-year veteran of the employee benefits industry. Dave merged his organization, Scheffler and Fear, with Dickerson and the Alero Group in May 2019. Dave's expertise and background are in the areas of alternative funding, benefit plan compliance, and group purchasing arrangements. He is the former president of the National Association of Health Underwriters and the 2015 recipient of the Harold R. Gordon Memorial, Memorial Award from NAHU as the Health Insurance Person of the Year. So Dave, how are you this morning? I am great. Thank you uh, for that introduction, Natalie, and it's good to be back with everyone again. Um, I think this is our third or fourth uh, CE presentation of uh, the series this year, so looking forward to sharing some good information with you. So let's get started. Uh, the first thing that uh, we try to do in, in these presentations is uh, provide somewhat of an overview of alternative funding of group health benefit plans. And if you've ever attended one of my courses in the past, you've probably seen this chart before, but for those of you who are, are new to this, I just wanna remind you of what the alternative funding world looks like uh, and, and how it works and, and how today's presentation is related to this. Um, as you know, um, most uh, employers, especially most small employers, today by what, what's called a fully insured, a plan that is not experience rated, a health benefit plan that's fully insured. Um, and over time, as they, as they grow in size, they might go to an experience rated insured plan. Uh, the next uh, issue that we see in alternative funding is employers beginning to purchase high deductible health plans and put in an HRA or a what we call a group HRA arrangement, which to me is, is one of the first steps in alternative funding. From there, we see a lot of employers beginning to jump into the level funded arena 
which uh, basically uh, is an opportunity for them to share, and if, if you would, the, uh, the risk and reward with the insurance company issuing the contract in terms of if there are any profits or surplus at the end of the year, they receive some of that. And then, of course, uh, the next step that uh, many of you may be familiar with is, is a self-funded program that uses stop-loss insurance. Uh, from there, we'll see uh, employers join group benefit captives that feature this stop-loss insurance, and that's what we're going to talk about today. And then uh, larger employers have formed their own uh, benefit captives with stop-loss, uh, as opposed to being in a group arrangement. And we'll talk a little bit about that. And then finally, on the far end of the scale are employers who totally self-insure without any stop-loss at all. And this really applies just to the largest uh, uh, employers in, in the country. Uh, you know, sometimes those with with maybe uh, 50 to 100,000 or more uh, employees and, and members. Uh, they're so big, they, they just don't need reinsurance of any type. And so they self-insure their, their full risks. So these are, these are the, this is the way we look at the alternative funding world. So uh, first off, I, it might be good to kind of define what is a group medical captive. Um, and, and, to, and to quote an, an organization that I thought did a, a very good job of explaining this, it is a health insurance pool that's formed by companies joining together to reduce the cost of their medical benefits spend. Now, these group medical captives can be formed and controlled by a single employer or by a group of employers coming together. Sometimes this is referred to as a multiple employer welfare arrangement, uh, but in, from a legal perspective, uh, these uh, individual employers are still running their own plans. They're just buying their stop-loss insurance through the captive organization. Uh, captives can also be organized and, and are organized by captive management companies who allow employers to apply for membership. Uh, this is sometimes referred to as a rent-a-captive. So the employer themselves don't form the captive and do all of the things necessary to run it. They instead join a captive, uh, which allows them to participate and, and take advantage of the services and, and products that are um, offered to the captive. I will tell you that uh, in, currently in the United States, most group medical captives uh, serve just the self-funded employer market. Uh, we know that today, 98% of employers with 1,000 or more employees are now self-funding their benefits through a federally-based ERISA um, regulation plan. And what we're seeing is a growing percentage of mid-sized employers that are now self-funding their medical benefits. And for purposes of today's uh, discussion, I'm going to define a mid-sized employer as one that has between 50 and 500 employees, okay? There are variations to that, but uh, here in California, you know, we define the large group market as 101 or more and the small group market as two to 100. Uh, but, but outside of California and in the real world, uh, you know, you have the jumbo employer markets, you've got large employers, you've got mid-sized employers, you got small employers and you've got micro employers as we call them. And these are all related to the number of employees that they have. But 
for purposes of today's discussion, we're, we're going to be talking about mid-sized employers that typically have between 50 and 500 employees. Uh, unlike fully insured plans, self-funded plans of this type are regulated under federal, uh, federal law, ERISA, uh, not state law. And this is important that you understand this because when it comes down to it, um, in, in, in the end, uh, many of these em, uh, employers, especially ones that are in multiple states, like being in a self-funded arrangement because they're, they, they don't want to have to, um, you know, go by 51 uh, sets of rules uh, in the country if you include the um, District of Columbia in that. And so um, it's just easier for a large employer or for any employer to, to go into a self-funding arrangement and, and avoid state premium taxes, state benefit mandates, and, and what have you. So why would a small or mid-sized employer even consider joining a captive? Well, when you go back to the big picture, what, what businesses are clearly experiencing is that the cost of providing health benefits or the health benefits spend is among the top three expenses of doing business in the country today. You've got payroll, you've got uh, um, you know, uh, costs related to payroll, you've got employee benefits, you've got workers' comp, you've got, you know, a, a lot of different things that, um, you know, cost the employer money. And health benefit, the health benefit spend is among the top three. Um, we also know that based on, on, on current, uh, on, on recent um, uh, survey data uh, performed, that we're seeing the cost of health benefits double every four years. And it's unfortunate because uh, it, it doubles more, uh, it, that, that doubling um, maybe is, is, is less as a, uh, effective in a, in, a, in a five or six year period for large employers, but for small employers, certainly, they've seen their premium rates um, double over the last four years. Um, another issue why they would consider joining a captive is that right now employers aren't getting claim reports to analyze these increases. And, and I, this is an important issue because, you know, here in California, for example, if you buy workers' compensation insurance from an insurance company, um, that insurance company is required under California law to provide the employer with workers' comp uh, lost runs, claim reports. Uh, it's just it's just part of what employers uh, expect because how can they do uh, how can they tackle you know safety issues and worksite um, uh, accidents and, and what have you without good data? Well, unfortunately, in in the group benefit uh, business and the fully insured group benefit business, uh, employers aren't getting claim reports like that from their carriers. Uh, and, and I won't go into the politics behind that decision, but but it concerns employers, especially ones that are spending upwards of, you know, a million dollars a year in premium, and yet they they don't get reports that really show what type of claims are being incurred, what where people are using their services, and 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 who's using the plan, and and you know, are they misusing the plan? Are they are they going into you know, emergency rooms when they should be going to an urgent care center? Are they are they buying uh, um, uh, lower cost generic drugs instead of, of purchasing expensive brand name drugs? 
This is the type of information that employee benefit managers are really frustrated about, not just you know, in, in California, but across the country, because they don't get a decent claim reports from carriers. Um, and so um, what this means is that, unfortunately, both the employer and their employees are, are disconnected from the actual cost of healthcare. You know, we've had this happen over the years after years about the fact that, you know, it's, it's, it's the cost of healthcare that's driving the premium uh, increases in our country. And that's very true. And so what you have is that people don't, don't understand that that, that five or $600 a month premium that they're paying for individual coverage is a direct result of what the claim costs are for, you know, providing uh, health benefits. So they're disconnected in this because they don't, they don't see that relation. Um, I, I will also comment that this, despite the reforms enacted under the Affordable Care Act, I think employers today are less trusting of traditional insurance programs than they used to be. Uh, they used to feel like, you know, I could, I could, you know, pay this money and, and I believe that my insurance carrier is doing everything they can to keep my costs down. And yet what we see today, unfortunately, is that premium rates are truly at their highest level. And, and they don't, they're, they're not going to go down. And again, because people aren't seeing that the healthcare costs related to those premiums, they just, uh, they, they just don't have the trust in their, their insurance company uh, that they might have had in the past. Many believe that they have no other options in the fully insured market other than, you know, having to raise deductibles, co-payments, and co-insurance, or the out-of-pocket uh, limits or by limiting provider choice. And we've all seen this in the market today where, you know, the, the you know, platinum, gold, silver, and bronze plans, they all have deductibles, they all have coinsurance payments. Um, and these just seem to increase each year as the law allows them to increase those under, under the ACA. So these are issues that are really uh, driving uh, small and, and especially mid-sized employers to saying, I need to see some other options here. So uh, our first polling question, and uh, you'll have one minute to respond. And Natalie, I'm going to let you uh, announce that. No problem. Um, that has actually already been launched. Okay. And the polling question is, a group benefit captive can be organized by A, a single large employer, B, by multiple employers together as a group, C, by a captive management company, or D, all of the above. I, I, we, we ought to get some Jeopardy music in here, huh? I know, we should. <laughs> have to work on that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And we have about 20 more seconds left. Okay. Again, it's important that you all respond to this so that... Uh, our records show when we send them to the Department of Insurance that you were participating in the class. That's why they're asking us to have these polling questions uh, throughout the, uh, the course. And, okay, I'm gonna go ahead and close it. And the results are 86% said all of the above. Very good. This is a good group. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Natalie. 
All right, so let's uh, let's move ahead here. So so what what I believe is that the captives effectively allow small and mid-sized employers to purchase benefits more like a large employer. And as I said before, you know, large employers out there, they utilize favorable laws such as federal ERISA rather than dealing with 50 different state rules and regulations. And that's a that's a big thing to these these multinational you know corporations that are setting up their their health plans um, the second point is that large employers are are managing their health benefits spend at inflation levels rather than medical trend and typically medical trend can run three to four times the rate of inflation if if we have a, um, a rate of inflation of say two and a half percent in this country you can expect that medical trend, and, and, and let me make sure that we understand what medical trend is. Medical trend isn't just the inflation of the cost of, of services and um, uh, uh, products related to healthcare. It's also the utilization of healthcare. And, and you know, here's a good example. You know, what, what you pay uh, in in year one for the you know X procedure is a thousand dollars and year two uh, the doctor office decides I'm going to charge a thousand and fifty dollars. Well, you know that's that's not very much, but it's a it's about a five percent increase in the cost of that service. However, what what you don't see is that you know in 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 year one the doctor may say. Uh, you know, you know, come see me for an office visit and uh, uh, come back in six months. Whereas in year two, he says, you know, uh, come back in, in three months. And so now he's, uh, you know, we're, we're effectively utilizing the healthcare uh, more uh, frequently than we had in the past. So that's what drives what we call medical trend at three to four times the cost of inflation. And large employers are, are being able to hold their benefit spend down at inflation levels, and that's good. Uh, large employers make better use of provider networks, of things called reference-based pricing, uh, what we call carve-out PBMs, pharmaceutical benefit management programs, uh, the use of centers of excellence, and population uh, management tools such as wellness, safety, and lifestyle that all have an effect on both the cost and the utilization of healthcare. So large employers try to do these innovative things. And I'm not saying that um, many insurance companies don't do this for their, their clients. In fact, I think most do because they, they wanna be competitive. But when you're a large employer and you're spending millions of dollars, you've got a, a direct responsibility to go in there and say, I, I need to make sure that you know, we're paying you know, the, the best price for, for these healthcare services that, uh, that we can. And then finally, and, and I think perhaps it's most important is that large employers uh, are used to having customized benefits. So they, you know, a customized plan that meets their employee needs as opposed to the one size, you know, fits all type approach. And, and you know, we see this less in California than, than in other states because in California now, we many times offer multiple plan designs and even multiple carriers in exchanges and things like that. Well, that's what large employers have always had an expectation of doing is being able to offer more customized benefits 
to meet their specifics of their uh, employee population. So what does a captive do? Well, a captive helps spread the risk of medical claim costs. And when you think about spreading this risk, uh, you have to kind of think in, in terms of uh, he who is a risk taker, he who is sharing the risk, and he who is shifting the risk. So in the risk taking side of this, an employer effectively says, look, I'm going to self-insure, say the first, uh, and I'll just use an example, $50,000 of medical claims per member per policy period. So they buy a specific stop loss deductible with a $50,000 deductible, uh, a specific stop loss policy with a $50,000 deductible. And that's the risk that that employer is taking. They're, they're at risk for the first $50,000 of any claims. Uh, there's nothing new about that. Then there is the aspect of risk sharing, where the employers will then pool all of the claims together that exceed that $50,000 specific stop loss deductible and go as high as say $500,000. And they'll pool those claims all together uh, in, in, a, in the captive and say, we're gonna share the risk here. And, and I'll get into the specifics of how that looks and, and, and feels. And then finally, there's the risk shifting because what the captive will do or the employer has said is that uh, any claims above $500,000 per member or for claims in excess of a of my aggregate um, attachment point, I'm going to purchase reinsurance uh, to uh, protect uh, protect us overall. And so the bottom line is, is that a group captive can generally purchase reinsurance coverage for less cost than can a single employer out there. That's why captives are so popular. So, you know, again, to summarize, the captive is saying, you know, you're going to take uh, part of the risk yourself, the first $50,000. We're going to share that risk among all of our members for claims between fifty dollars and $500,000. And then finally, for any big claims over a uh, half million dollars, uh, we're going to have, uh, we're going to shift that risk to a reinsurance company. That's, that's the basics of, of what a captive risk sharing and, and, and pooling is all about. So let me talk about this pooled layer of risk real quick, because it's, it, that's fundamentally what's most important to that captive. Again, remember, this is the risk. This, I call it the middle layer of risk, but this is the risk that's, uh, that, that's absorbed or, or taken after the individual employer's specific stop loss is done. And in this illustration here, here's an employer who, who is taking the risk on the first $50,000 of annual claims per person. Okay, that's that blue section. And then, and then in the gray section up here, that's the risk uh, shifting, whereby if, if the, um, uh, this employer has claims of over $500,000 on any one person, the reinsurance company takes that. But this middle section here in orange that's the, the risk sharing part. And what you'll see is that the employer will pay a, a, a premium similar to what they might be paying to a stop loss insurance company if they were not in a captive and they were buying stop loss from uh, directly from an insurance company, then they'd pay a premium for that. And they're gonna pay a similar premium to the captive for that middle layer of risk. And then um, at year's end, 
the captive then sits down and, and generally within a 90 to 180 day runout period, they'll, they'll provide a full accounting to their members of all of the premium collected for this middle layer of risk and all claims that were paid, that, that, that were paid by the captive during that plan year. If the, if the captive has a bad year, in, in other words, the, the claims exceeded the premium collected, then the members will be called on to cover their excessive losses. And I call this what's called a collateral call. They'll, they'll go to the member and they'll say, look, we, we asked you to put up some front end collateral here, and we're gonna have to call on that uh, in order to pay our excessive risk because we had a bad year. Uh, but if they have a good year, the members are actually receive a payment proportionate to the amount of premium that they paid in, and that's simply referred to as a surplus payment. They had a surplus of, of premium collected uh, over the claims uh, paid out. And, uh, and that's what, um, and, and a good captive, a, a good well-managed captive will have many more uh, years of, of uh, good experience than they will bad experience. But, but again, they, they have to assume that there could be a bad year in there. So they, you know, they're, they're looking at this very, very carefully. So one of the questions that I get asked a lot is, well, where does the money go? I mean, tell me how the money gets divided up. So if I were, if I were to take the dollars that an employer is paying on their health benefit spend and they joined a captive program, okay, then, then I would tell you that the bulk of that employer's dollars in this particular case, 71 cents on the dollar, the employer is using uh, to pay their, their, their claims fund. In other words, that's the, that's the risk taking that that employer is doing themselves. And, and of course, as we all know, if they're in a self-insured uh, arrangement um, and, they're, and they're putting this money up uh, in advance, uh, they could get a surplus refund uh, when they have more claims dollars collected than they have actually had in, in paid out. The second part of what the employer's dollars would, would pay for is this pooled layer premium. And, and that's what we just talked about in the prior slide where, um, again, that's this premium for this portion of the risk here. And so uh, I had to color code this to keep, keep this uh, straight in my mind. And so uh, again, in a captive, that employer has the ability to get some part of this back after the captive pays out all the claims again, a surplus refund on, on this amount. So they, they're able to get money back on, on, on this section here in blue and on this section here in, in orange. And then the rest of their money, about you know, nine, 10 cents on the dollar, um, you know, some of that will be paid for the reinsurance for the stop loss coverage, uh, the reinsurance premium to the uh, captive stop loss carrier. And about 5% of that will probably be paid out in administrative and consultant fees and, and plan fees not related to um, uh, claim costs. So, so that's, that's how the money ends up getting spent. And as you can see, it's, it's very similar to what you would have in a, in a self-insured plan. The proportions of it are, are, is that instead of buying stop loss from a commercial carrier, you're buying it through the captive and you have a, an opportunity to get some money back if they have a good year. Um, Here's an example of a captive uh, that provided an annual reconciliation report to all of their 
to, to uh, they had 10 firms that were participating in their captive. And so uh, this is what their annual reconciliation report looked like. So you have employers A, B uh, through uh, J, A through J up here. And um, each employer had a shared risk of coverage of between uh, what I call 50,000 to the $500,000 level. In other words, they, their stop loss uh, coverage in, the, in their case uh, kicked in at uh, $50,000. And, and the first $450,000 of risk was absorbed by the captive. Um, the average number of uh, members in each of these employer groups, and it varied, you had a, a small one here with 373 or 275 members, excuse me. And uh, you had a, a larger one with uh, looks like 1900 uh, members. And this is, we're talking about members, employees and dependents here. So the annual premium that these employers each paid to the captive for this middle layer of risk for their for their stop loss coverage, if you would, uh, in in aggregate was 4.5 million dollars is what they all paid together. And when they finished their and uh, reconciliation, they showed 3.3 million dollars of paid shock loss, uh, um, stop loss claims, which left a surplus to be distributed back among the members of $1.223 million. And then uh, you see down here what their share of the surplus distribution was. It varied based on their size and how much they paid in, in premium here. And then finally, you have a net uh, pooled uh, premium. So if I'm employer A, I, I, I paid $381,000 to the captive at the, you know, throughout the year. I got back 102,000 as a surplus distribution. So my net cost for premium for stop loss was $278,000. And that's why captives are attractive to uh, employers. It's not the only reason, but it's a big reason. And, and it's, uh, I think, important. So a good captive will provide these kinds of reports and disclosures. There's not a lot of you know, they don't have a lot of hidden things going on here. It's all very uh, black and white and, and very little gray, if any. So that brings me to the issue of, well, do captives more than just pool risk? And the answer is without question, absolutely. Um, the captives that, that I'm aware of and that I've worked with in the past, most of them in, in, a, in a broad term help provide risk management services for each employer member in the captive, okay? Now, you could say, well, what if the employer doesn't want risk management services? The chances are very good then the captive is gonna say, we don't want you in our captive because if you don't wanna take risk management seriously, then we don't want you in here. So, you know, that's kind of an important issue. You know, some employers say, hey, I'll just pay the premium and I don't care what happens. Well, they're not a good, they're not a good candidate to be in a captive because the captives want the employers to have uh, skin in the game. They want them to have a vested interest in what's going on. So, so they'll provide uh, a number of things, including data analytics, you know, to help understand the high cost of healthcare using a, a data analytics uh, systems. And there are a number of data analytics uh, programs and systems out there that uh, an employer could purchase on their own. They're, they're not inexpensive, but many times it makes more sense to 
to uh, purchase that through the captive because that's a that's an added benefit that they're getting in the captive that they that would they would pay for otherwise on their own. Uh, captives also help uh, design and and promote the use of efficient provider networks uh, and or reference-based pricing schemes and and again if I if I'm a captive and I've got a number of members in there you know I might go to uh, a, a major PPO player and say I want to negotiate something in in be, behalf of my members to use your PPO network because it, it appears to be good but they don't want to pay the, the price that you would normally charge a small employer or a mid-sized employer to use your network in you know, a network access fee they want to pay less than that and so they have some obviously negotiating ability because they're represented you know uh, thousands of members as opposed to a few hundred members so that uh, that's important um, Another big thing that I think captives are doing that is important that gets overlooked are the use of um, pharmaceutical benefit management firms who address specific uh, uh, prescription drug cost savings. And then they pass the RX rebates back down to the members of that captive. And this is very important because today, you know, I'm, I'm hearing numbers that that the cost of prescription drugs as a percentage of the total healthcare benefit spend have exceeded uh, well over 20% and are probably, you know, approaching 30% at this point with the invention and uh, distribution of these new specialty drugs and things like that. And so uh, most of these pharmaceutical uh, firms are, are passing rebates along. I don't, I'm not gonna get into the politics of why that happens, but but there are RX rebates out there. And instead of being passed back through to the insurance carrier, um, uh, you know, they should be passed back through to the employer, the self-funded employer um, to, you know, net out their, their costs. Um, there's much, uh, there, there should be, and, and, and there generally is full claim transparency that's updated in real time. You know, when you go in and you get claim reports, uh, that the captives can provide you by downloading claims data from the, the third-party administrators or the carriers who are administering their individual programs. And then, you know, what I what I will say is with that claim transparency, the employer is able to make some, some good decisions about how their benefits need to be designed and, and carried out. And this is very important. Most captive managers will provide these services that I mentioned at no extra cost. Uh, to the employer and they'll work with each employer and their third-party administrator to implement solutions to, uh, to combat the, uh, the high cost of healthcare. So uh, again, while a captive is expected to do pooling of risk and all, what we're seeing is that the really good captives out there, and there are some good ones, really good ones, um, they've got to do more than just pool risk. They've got to provide these other, what I call um, uh, ancillary uh, reasons to, uh, to to be in the program and to help manage costs. Okay, we're ready for uh, polling question number two. Natalie, are, are we ready to go? Yes, it's already launched. Okay, so polling question number two is group benefit captives are regulated under state insurance laws. Is that true or false? Da 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 da. No, I'm not going to say, sorry. <laughs> 
Are group benefit captives regulated under state insurance laws? True or false? We have about 30, well, less than 30 seconds left, actually. Okay. Well, I'm going to take a swig of my, uh, my tea here again. As you should. About 10 more seconds and we'll close it. Okay, it looks like 53% said false. Hmm, 53% said false. Well, and that is correct, it is false. Group benefit captives are not regulated by the states. They're regulated under, under federal laws and uh, particularly the self-funded plans are regulated under ERISA. So uh, that, that, the answer is false. Okay. All right, let's uh, move on. So uh, as I mentioned a few minutes ago that uh, captives can accept or reject um, uh, members. And think of it this way, you know, if I'm a stop loss insurance carrier or if I'm any insurance carrier, I typically try to underwrite the risk so that I can charge a premium that will make me money. Okay, I mean, this is this is insurance 101. And, and if I can charge a premium that, that makes me money because I believe that the claims that I'll pay out will be less than the premium I collect, then that's, a, that's an underwriting gain. Well, captives have similar issues in that they, they have to also look at uh, the members that are coming to them and saying, look, we need to, in order to um, uh, sell you or provide you with stop loss insurance, we need to determine what type of a risk you are. And so all captives, uh, at least the ones that I deal with, uh, do have underwriting considerations. And let's talk about that just for a moment. In a, in a perfect world, the preferred method is that the captive will say to the employer, we need you to provide us with a current and prior three years claims experience. And by that, we wanna see monthly and annual gross paid claims. And then we wanna see a shock loss claims report for individuals that have had claims say in excess of $25,000 or 50% of, of, uh, of a certain pooling point. Um, and by, by claims data, shock loss claims, we want to note the date of those claims, the diagnosis of those, those large shock loss claims, the amount of the claim, and what's the prognosis? Is it was it uh, is the claim closed or is it ongoing? And and believe me, um, you know if you're shopping for workers' compensation coverage in California and you get loss runs from the insurance carrier because you're trying to go out and and maybe find another workers' comp insurance company to write your comp business, uh, they want to know these things. They want to know about open claims and what the diagnosis is and things like that because they're underwriters. They, you know, they're, they're in this for the money. So again, the preferred method is that the, the captive will say, provide us with the, you know, the, the current and prior three years claims experience. And we, we want to see monthly and annual claims. We want to see shock losses. Now, as we all know, especially in the mid-sized market here in California, 
claims history is not available. Uh, then some captives will say, okay, if you don't have claims history or credible claims history, as they like to call it, then we want to see premium history. And so they'll, they'll say, show us the, the premium rates and the paid premium that you paid for the last uh, three years. And we want to see your current uh, premium, your renewal, and, and again, the prior three years. And also we want the employer to to sign or complete an employer risk questionnaire, which will ask questions, general questions about the employer and do they know of any large uh, ongoing claims and you know this and that. Um, and, and so they will take this uh, premium and rate history and they will use that to extract what they believe the paid claims might be going forward. You say, well, how, how can they do that? Well, just remember one thing, the ACA, indicated that there is a, 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 uh, a minimum loss ratio rule. And in the large employer market, the minimum loss ratio rule is 85%. That 85% of paid premium has to be paid out in, in uh, claims or the carrier has to refund money back. So when you think about it, that carrier is writing that risk with the understanding that the premium that they charge needs to cover what they believe the estimated claims will be, plus this 15% margin, if you would. So there is a way sometimes to back into claims uh, data by looking at the premium data and making an assumption about what their loss ratio looks like. I'm not saying it's perfect, and, and you know I could have an actuary come on and spend a lot of time on this, but. But that's the bottom line if, if, as an advisor, if you're helping your client and say, if we can't provide claims experience, then we need to look at a premium history. And uh, the employer says, well, I'm not going to show somebody what my renewal is. I want them to, to bid on this or whatever. And you know what? That, that employer is probably not a good candidate for this if that's their attitude. Because these guys aren't coming in and trying to, uh, to, to shadow price stuff. They're just trying to say, look, we... We believe your claims are going to be here. Therefore, this is what we're going to have to charge you to cover. If claim rate and premium history is not available, there are some other alternatives on the market today. Uh, some captives will make use of what's called an RX history system. And I won't get into a, a lot of detail on this, but this is a, a national database that basically you can uh, submit names to, and it will come back with what the what prescription drugs uh, people are using, and uh, it's a it's a national database. It's been around for several years now, and it and it can help an underwriter say, okay, well, if if somebody's using this type of medication, that's an indication that they have this type of condition, and on the average, this type of condition will cost about X amount in in uh, healthcare claim costs, um, and and so they'll they'll back into that. Uh, there are uh, another group of, whoops, I'm sorry. Uh, there's another group of um, underwriters who will use what's called individual profile checks. This is this has uh, also been around for uh, a little while. And think of it like uh, they'll they'll do a, a like a credit report on individuals to, you know, what about their, you know, where they live and and uh, what their job uh, history is like and just things like that that are not medically related, but think of it like a like like it would be a credit report. And they'll, there are some underwriters that will use that. And then finally, um, 
There are some underwriters that will use uh, individual health risk assessments. Um, that's my term. Uh, you, so others call it a medical questionnaire. That is legal to do. Uh, I could cite you a lot of information in uh, HIPAA that allows for individual health risk assessments to be done uh, if the carrier is using those assessments to determine a premium rate that will apply to all people in the group and not, not just an individual. Uh, those assessments can be done by paper, but typically they're done online or telephonically where the uh, health information is not shared with anyone other than the underwriter. So the employer, the, the agent, the individual, uh, other members of the employer's staff, nobody sees that information on any one individual. They, they, see, they might see it in general for the group as a whole, but not for any one individual. So what should you expect from a good captive? Well, as, I, as I've already mentioned, uh, you should expect that there'll be detailed reporting with full transparency of claims data and for data involving the fixed and the variable costs of their plan. Fixed cost being premium for stop loss, administrative costs, uh, uh, fees that you pay for using uh, PPO uh, networks or reference-based pricing services. All of that will be fully transparent and should be provided in, in regular ongoing reports. The second thing that you should expect is total control. That, that captive will, will provide a choice of network providers, of claims administration partners, uh, plan language, uh, plan documents, and also uh, come to the, the table with good cost containment solutions uh, that the employer can look at and say, hey, this, this will help, help me and, and make my benefits better, but maybe lower my health my healthcare uh, benefits spend. Uh, a good captive should provide financial efficiency. Uh, you know, the, the, the variable cost funding, uh, a variable cost funding strategy and a risk pooling strategy that works for the employer. You know, I, to say to an employer, hey, you buy stop loss insurance and it's, uh, it's got a $50,000 deductible um, and it's an unlimited benefit, but if you have a claim, You've got to pay the full claim and then wait to get reimbursed. Well, you know, that doesn't work for a mid-sized employer. And, and, and so the captive, you know, goes in there and they pool that and they say, you know, that, that's fine. You pay your 50000 and the captive will take it from there. And then finally, uh, what I consider to be a turnkey platform. There's no guesses about what you're going to receive for service and advice from, from the, the captive. It's a, it's a you know, a to Z type arrangement where all of these things are addressed and it's a full comprehensive package of services. Uh, what does all this mean to an advisor? Well, hopefully those, uh, those 100 or so of you out there that are listening to this, you, you'll, you'll need to know that as an advisor, you are a valued member of the employer's employee benefit team. And if you, you, know, you know, if all you're doing is selling insurance, and, and you're not really providing good advice, you're probably in the wrong area here, okay? If all you wanna do is just sell policies, I'm not sure this is for you. But on the other hand, if, if you wanna go in there, be a true advisor, sit you know, elbows to elbows with the employer, with the, with the actuaries, with the, uh, uh, the accountants and the lawyers and all, and, and be part of that team, then this is a great opportunity 
with regard to captives of doing that because you you should know the market, you should understand it, you should have already vetted out the various captive uh, options out there and bring that information to the table and provide them with with help and support and and especially tips on how to you know contain costs and and reduce their health care uh, benefit spend. That's what employers looking at captives are expecting of their advisors. And I, and I, to me, it's just, that's the bottom line here. So let me kind of uh, summarize and, and conclude a few things. And, and I think we have one more polling question and then some, uh, some basic information. So as I said in the beginning, the movement from traditional fully insured health benefits into a form of self-insurance is accelerating. And it has been accelerating ever since the passage of the ACA, um, you, you know, nearly 10 years ago. Uh, and, and I think it's only going to get um, uh, faster because healthcare costs uh, are just uh, ex exacerbated in this country and, and employers are responding accordingly. In most cases, the employer is going to purchase some sort of stop loss protection from large catastrophic claims, in other words, specific stop loss, and from overall high claims and aggregate stop loss. And the two of those are very true in the mid-sized market, okay? I, I see very few mid-sized employers, again, 50 to 500, that don't buy both specific and aggregate stop loss uh, for their health benefit uh, program. Um, third is, is that purchasing stop loss through a captive allows that employer to share in some of the profit or gain that would normally have gone to the stop loss insurer. And again, nothing against insurance companies making money, all right? That's not the issue here. The issue is, is that employers are saying, if I'm gonna spend, you know, a million dollars a year in premium, um, and, and, and I'm gonna buy $250,000 a year of stop loss insurance, I, I need to know and understand that, that uh, if there's some money to be made there, that I get some of that back because uh, you know, th those are my people. Um, pooling with other employers spreads the risk for the cost of, of these high unpredictable claims. And again, you know, specific stop loss. A group captive will provide benefit analytic services as well as negotiate lower cost service providers such as TPAs and pharmacy benefit managers, et cetera. Uh, those are some of the things that you should expect the captive to do. And then finally, you, the, the advisor, should perform a due diligence for, for any or all captive programs and make recommendations based on the facts and history of those captives and not on your compensation, okay? Most captives today prefer to deal with advisors on a net basis. In other words, they don't pay the advisor a commission. Um, they could, but most of them are not, and I think that's good because the advisor should be paid by the client, not by the, the, the captive, and, and then they're fully, they're, they're fully um, objective in, in the advice they give. And I think, that's, I think that's very important. Okay, last uh, polling question, Natalie. This is the one that I always pay big attention to. <laughs> Was the information in today's presentation, do you consider it to be extremely helpful? somewhat helpful or not very helpful at all. Please let us know. And then stick around for another minute after that and uh, we'll share just a few other things with you. How are we doing, Natalie? 
Uh, we are at 30 seconds now. Okay. Take another swig of my tea here. We have about 10 more seconds left and we'll close it. Okay, we're gonna close it. And 99% said it was true. Okay, thank you. I feel feel better. <laughs> well, thank you very much for that. And, and uh, you know, I forgot to mention that today's sponsor is Shepler and Fear. We're at Division of Dickerson Insurance Services, an Alera Group company. And um, we, we reach out to agents. This is the advertising part of this. Uh, you can submit your requests for proposals uh, uh, to us, and we in turn will share those with various captive management companies that we work with. We assist you in the underwriting process that the captive uh, will, will put you through. So we're involved with that. Uh, we'll review the options. Uh, available through the captive and customize the, the plan the way your client uh, wants it done. We will assist in enrollment and implementation uh, of, of the captive program. And then we will also assist in periodic uh, data and loss review with each employer with the advisor. So you might say that, that our feature in this is that we're the broker's consultant, okay? We're, we're your consultant as, as a broker an advisor and uh, work with you, not uh, not around you. Okay, and so for more information, you can you can give us a a, a call or contact me at at the number you see there. Uh, Natalie, uh, do we have any questions that I need to uh, answer? Yes, we do. Um, the very first question is: Is there a rule of thumb that a captive will have say one bad year every five years? You know, I don't know that there's a rule of thumb, but I would say that, you know, typically employers that buy stop loss insurance, and I tell them, look, if you buy aggregate stop loss, maybe one out of five years, you might have an aggregate penetration. Uh, and, and so I, I used to quote that a bit, but as far as captives having good year, bad years, you know, many of the captives that I'm working with, um, you know, they were, they they haven't had a bad year in several years. <laughs> you know, the one in particular that that I deal with has been around for 18 years, and I think that they only had one bad year in 18 years, and ever since then, it's it's been uh, very positive. So I, I don't know that you can, you know, if a captive is is having a bad year every five years, I don't know that they're going to last very long because they're in a position to be able to control what, what's a bad year or not by charging the right amount of premium and stuff. So, you know, uh, I, I would say that that's probably not true, like it would be, say, in, a, in an aggregate stop loss situation. Next question. Does the captive PBM outsource medicine internationally and do they also provide manufacturer assistance programs to reduce members medication costs yes many of them do it depends on the pbm 
And, you know, so a captive might go out and, and do its due diligence on various PBM uh, providers out there, PBM firms, and uh, then come back to the captive members and say, okay, we, we looked at these five PBMs and, and this is what, you know, each one of them is, is willing to do. And I would say that in a majority of cases, yes, they, 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 they will look at, you know, uh, international uh, drug purchasing. They will look at, um, uh, you know, a full pass through of the, the, the rebates and taking advantage of any um, manufacturer uh, provided um, uh, cost assistance programs. Yes. Does the employer hire their own TPA or does the captive provide a TPA to work with? It depends on the, the captive, but most of the captives that I'm working with uh, say you choose your TPA. So you use whatever TPA you want. Um, we, we, we might um, have to put them through an approval process, much like a, a stop loss insurance company has to approve a TPA. Um, but uh, most of the time I'm seeing them say, you, you pick the TPA you want to use. There are a couple of captives out there that, that have formed internal or, or, or TPA relationship, or let me put it, a partnership with a particular TPA that they will use and recommend that their, their clients use it. But, but I wouldn't say that that's necessarily a hard and fast rule. They have to use that one. So I think there's a lot of flexibility in that regard. That's what I'm seeing today. Does the employer work with an account manager at the captive to administer the plan or does the employer still work directly with the broker's office and then the broker's office works with the captive? That depends on the employer and the broker's relationship. I would say that the majority of bro uh, broker advisors who who have um, uh, uh, agreements with those employers are still on the front lines. They're still uh, the first place that the, um, the 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 member calls if they have an issue. Uh, I don't see that changing a lot. Now, as you know, there are some employers out there who uh, want the broker to do other things for them, and in some cases, they 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 might say, "Hey, we we want our members to call the TPA." especially for claim issues because of HIPAA and this and that. So I, I, I see a combination of, of, of different methods, but for the most part, brokers that come to me and want to work with a captive and a TPA uh, have the understanding that they want their office to still be involved and provide the, 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 the personal customer service to the, um, the individual members that they can. Now, I, I might just add that not all captives are necessarily broker friendly, okay? There are some that don't work with brokers, uh, they only work with TPAs, or they only work with a certain TPA, and they, they just pretend brokers don't exist, and you need to kind of understand that. So, you know, not every, not every captive is broker friendly, okay? Next question. How do you get paid for your services? Uh, is that directed to me or to the broker? If it's directed to the broker, because actually it's the same way. Um, most captives will not pay the broker a commission. However, they do uh, tell the broker that if you, if you want to do this, then you, you get a PEPM fee. 
And really that's a discussion the broker needs to have with the employer. So for example, if, I'm, if I have an employer and I say, look, I, I can sell you this stop loss. The stop loss premium is gonna be $250,000 a year. And I'm gonna be paid a 10% uh, commission. So that's $25,000 a year that I'll receive in commission. However, if you would rather this be done net of commission, then I will, I will be paid, I'll still be paid $25,000 a year, but it'll be based on a PEPM amount of, and let's just say it's uh, you know $20 per employee per month. So that's a discussion that the broker can have with the employer directly. And then when they go to the captive, they say the broker uh, compensation here will be uh, you know uh, $20 PEPM and, and please uh, factor that number into the cost of the program so that that's how the broker is being paid. That's the way I see most of it. There are a few that will load a commission onto the, the stop loss premium, but to be candid with you, um, I'm, I'm seeing less of that in the last couple of years and, and really more PEPM type of compensation. And if, and if you, you know, as far as how we're paid here, we're, we're paid a, a piece of the PEPM. So if I, Broker says, well, I'm, I'm going to get $20 of PEPM that I'm going to say, well, then we're going to want five to provide our services to you. So the total broker consultant load is $25 as opposed to 20. So you, you, you charge what you want and this is what we want to, to do our job. It's, it's pretty black and white. Next question. Can you share a list of preferred TPAs and PBMs? Um, I can. Uh, I don't do it publicly in in this, but but if you contact me directly, I'm I'm happy to to um, uh, share that with you. I have some information that's proprietary that I don't share, but I'm I'm happy to have that conversation with somebody one on one. But I I don't put that up here in a in a CE presentation. Next question. It looks like that's all the questions that we have. Well, not too bad, not too bad. We're, we're uh, a little over an hour, so I guess we're doing all right. Well, listen, thanks so much, everybody. Thanks, Natalie, for your help again. And uh, join us in a couple of weeks. Uh, on the 21st, we're gonna do a, a CE presentation on uh, what advisors need to know about level funded health plans. We're gonna get into some, uh, some weeds on level funding that uh, I think a lot of people uh, will really be interested in hearing. So uh, nothing else. Uh, see you in a couple of weeks, I hope. Bye-bye. Like Dave said, thank you so much, everyone, for joining us. Um, like I said earlier, I'm going to go ahead and send a copy of this presentation, as well as a link to the recording within the next 24 hours. And of course, if you have any questions about this information in particular, I am not the expert Mr. Dave Fear is, so please go ahead and contact him. And thank you so much. Thank you, Dave, for another informative presentation. And everyone have a great rest of your Thursday. Take care. Bye-bye.